All right, so this is Kabbalah and Coffee. Today is, let me check the date. Okay, just double checking. Today is February 14th, 2021. And the title of today's class is Living Waters. Living Waters. And the truth is, I could have called the class Image versus Essence, which also brings out the, uh, the, the theme of today's class. But let's start with, uh, with what I did choose for the theme, for the title, which is Living Waters. Let me explain what I mean. Of course, in order to support life, we need water. Hydration is, uh, is a key element to support life. So that's, that's without a doubt. When I talk about living waters, I don't mean, you know, all waters that give life, but there are certain, rather, there are certain waters that are deemed in Jewish literature, in halachic literature, as living, which may sound a little strange. That What does that imply? There are some waters that are living and some waters that are not. How could you have waters that aren't living? And for that matter, what does living waters mean anyway? So let me explain a little bit in the halachic context, the Jewish legal context. The Torah talks about certain impurities that require the use of a red heifer. Right? So raise your hand, if you will, either your real or virtual hand, if you've heard of the red heifer mitzvah in the Torah. Yeah, the red heifer, it's a cow that's perfectly red that is then prepared in a special way. It's, it's, it's sacrificed and the ashes are, 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 are mixed with water. And then it's used to purify an individual that has a specific type of, of impurity. What's interesting... Now, this is, in case this sounds a little strange to you, don't worry, you're in very good company. <laughs> King Solomon said, who was considered to be the wisest of all men, King Solomon said, every mitzvah I understand, there's one that eludes me, and that is the red heifer, the paraduma, the red heifer. So if you and I don't get it, we're in good company, but it's a mitzvah, it's in the Torah. What's interesting is that the way the Torah describes the process, it says that you mix the ashes of the red heifer with not just any water, but with mayim chayim. You know what the word chayim means? What does the word chayim mean? Life. Chayim is life. So mayim chayim, mayim is water. So mayim chayim is living water. Living waters, because Mayim is actually plural. I was, if you saw my email I sent last night about the class, I vacillated between water and waters. I, I don't know. I guess if it's more than one drop, it's waters. I'm kidding. Anyway, so I don't, I don't know how to pluralize it, but I just, I went, I went with my gut on that. So here's the point. There are waters that are deemed halachically to be just regular waters, and then there are living waters. What's living waters? Living waters are defined as waters or water that stems from a live source, like from a live stream, a live well, a, wa a, a live spring. I'm going to go back to the first, first <laughs> explanation. The first, a live spring of water that produces water, that's considered mayim chayim, living waters. The Mishnah in tractate para, para means cow, 
Para Aduma is the red cow or the red heifer. Tractate Para, which discusses these laws, the Mishnah actually details what waters are considered to be Chaim, alive. And so, if, uh, if you will, please let us go on this journey together into the halachic literature, and then we're going to transfer it over to Kabbalah. And by the way, my objective this morning, in addition to exploring Kabbalah, which is what we always do, is to also show how Kabbalah intertwines with Nigla. Kabbalah is, of course, the secrets of Torah. Nigla refers to the revealed parts of Torah, the halachic literature of Torah, and you could study each one separately. You can study the laws and the rules and regulations of Torah, and you can study the Kabbalah of Torah and never see them mix. This morning, I'd like to show you how they intertwine and how we bridge the gap between them, showing that indeed it's not two Torahs. Of course, God forbid, two Torahs. It's one Torah that has multiple layers. So let's jump in. I'm going to share my screen with you. I have the Mishnah lined up, ready to go. Um, and we'll be able to read it together. So first of all, just give me a thumbs up if you can see my screen. You should be able to see my screen. Yes, thumbs up. Okay, I'm getting the thumbs up. Here we go. I'm going to read Mishnah. Okay, so this is, if you could see right there where my, hand, my uh, mouse hand is. Mishnah, para, so it's the Mishnah. Tractate para, chapter 8. Okay, so eighth chapter of Para, and it's the ninth Mishnah within that chapter. So we have the tractate, the chapter, and the specific Mishnah. So it's chapter 8, Mishnah 9 of Para. Here we go. Spoiled waters are unfit. The Mishnah says that when you're preparing the water mixture, or the purifying, the purification mixture, for the, um, for the red heifer, for the, for the paraduma. So you have to use Maim Chaim living waters. If you're using spoiled waters, they are unfit. Now, immediately you're wondering, because I'm wondering also, what are spoiled waters? What does that mean? Don't worry. We're going to explore the commentaries in a moment. Let's go through the Mishnah first. The Mishnah says spoiled waters are unfit. The following are spoiled waters. Those that are salty or lukewarm. Waters that disappoint are unfit. Oh man, that water was very disappointing. All right, we're going we're to explore what that means about disappointing waters. The following are waters that disappoint. Those that disappoint even once in a seven-year cycle. It reminds me of the joke that they tell about the kid who, uh, for the first few years of his life, he didn't speak. And the parents were worried. They were very concerned. And they, you know, they first thought, you know, maybe he would pick it up. And at some point, they got a little bit, a little bit nervous. I mean, not like super nervous, but a little bit, a little bit uh, concerned. Until one day, they're all eating dinner. And this child, for the first time in his life, opens his mouth. And he says, Mom, I don't like the potatoes. <laughs> so everyone's shocked. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, he speaks. Little Johnny speaks. And they say, wow, amazing. They give him a hug and a kiss. They say, how come you haven't said anything until now? He said, until now, everything's been good. Anyway, so that's the story. So um, waters that disappoint even once in a seven-year cycle are disappointing waters. Even once in seven years. Didn't like the potatoes. Forget about it. All right, so, so once in seven years, the waters are considered disappointing waters, which, again, we'll explore in the commentaries. Those that disappoint only in times of war or in years of drought are fit 
Rabbi Yehuda says they are unfit. All right, that's the Mishnah. Now, in its, in its typically um, cryptic way, the Mishnah lays out the law, but doesn't get into all the details, which is, by the way, in case, let me stop sharing for a moment. I will get back to the share, don't worry. Um, I just want to be able to see you when I talk as much as possible. So just in its, in its inimitable way, in its amazing way, the Mishnah gives you the law, but does it very concise and very cryptically, and that's the way of the Mishnah, which is why, as perhaps you know, it's why there's a Talmud. If you've, heard of the, if you've heard of the word Talmud as being a book, yeah, it's commentary on the Mishnah. More than commentary, it's explaining the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the first time that the oral law was written down, was put down in, in paper, but it was written very briefly for those that basically knew all the laws and just needed some short pointer reminders. The Talmud elaborates, elucidates, questions, explores, and, 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 and expands on the teachings of the Mishnah in an elaborate way. Again, just giving you a little bit of the structure. So that's the Mishnah. You and I are not meant from the Mishnah to understand all the laws, but that's why we have commentaries, the Talmud, but also Mishnah commentaries call from the Talmud and give us, you know, kind of brief, uh, brief expositions on the Mishnah. So I'm going to share my screen with you again. This time, I want to direct your attention to the right side, the right side of the screen. It has a bit of an English commentary. This website is great. Safaria, you can always, whatever your Judaic uh, research needs, you can head to safaria.org and check it out. Safaria, it's got an English commentary, which we're going to go through right now. And again, the objective of this, oh, I should mention one more thing. Mishnah, the letters of Mishnah, the letters, Mem, Shin, Nun, He, Mishnah, are the same letters as Neshama, soul. So it's appropriate as always, to study Mishnah, especially in honor of, uh, of neshamot, of souls. So um, indeed, the, the study should be of great merit. Now, let's talk about, let's, let's get into the commentary of the Mishnah, sharing my screen with you once again. I'm going to move over. When I uh, see this, I have like the, I have you guys on the, like on the right side, a strip on the right side. I moved you guys over a little bit so that I can read this on my screen. Just letting you know, taking into the process. All right, English explanation of the Mishnah. Here we go. Uh, para 8-9. Intro. <laughs> Today's Mishnah continues to discuss what water does not count as living waters and therefore cannot be used for the red cow ritual or the other rituals that require living waters. So I mentioned the red heifer, the red cow as it's referred to here. Um, there are some other rituals in Judaism, including for the Mitzorah, for the... Um, the individual afflicted with saras, sarat, uh, part of purification process also includes mayim chaim, living waters. Um, I just mentioned the most famous one, but there are a few rituals, biblical rituals that require mayim chaim, and here we're defining what they are. All right, so here we go. Spoiled waters, back in the commentary again, right side of the page. Spoiled waters are unfit. The following are spoiled waters. Those that are salty are lukewarm. Salty, so the commentary, salty water or, wa or water that comes from warm ponds or such type of places do not count as living water because it is not drinkable. All right, so salt water, we get it, it's not drinkable. I mean, today we have technology, thank God, that can help, help make it more drinkable, but in and of itself, naturally, it's not drinkable. Lukewarm water, who wants lukewarm water? 
right? I'm kidding. I don't know what type of lukewarm palms this is, but somehow, for some reason, I'm not an expert in lukewarm palms, but if I was, I would probably understand better why this, was, why this is considered to be unfit and not drinkable. Um, okay. Let's welcome Linda to the group. All right, let's jump back in. Waters that disappoint. So we, we, use, the waters, we use the phrase waters that disappoint. What's the deal with, with disappointing waters? What does that even mean? All right, I was expecting LaCroix and all I got was sparkling water and all I got was regular water. What's going on? I literally am, have my LaCroix at hand. All right, let's jump in. Commentary, waters that disappoint are waters from springs or rivers that dry up periodically. Listen to that. What is the definition of disappointing waters? It means if the spring or river dries up periodically. If the river dries up even once every seven years, it still counts as disappointing and cannot be used. If waters fail only in times of war due to the overdrawing by soldiers, or only in times of drought and others in extreme conditions, they do not, according to the first opinion, count as waters that disappoint, and they, and, they, and they can be counted as living waters. But Rabbi Judah, Rabbi Huda, dissents and says that these two cannot be used. But not getting into that last little point of contention, the core idea is that to be considered living waters... Let me stop sharing because I think we got it. In order to be considered living waters, the water needs to constantly be flowing from the source and be present. If the water is drying up, it's not living waters. It's not living waters. Even once seven, in every seven years, it's very infrequent, right? Um, you and I have, know about rivers and streams or whatever that, you know, once in a while dry up or whatever it is, right? Yes, I think, I, I think I've seen pictures and whatnot. One day I'm kayaking and there's nothing there or something like that, right? So, theoretically. So the point is that if it dries up even once every seven years, it's not considered to be living water. Living water has to be ständig, as they say in Yiddish, constant. I'm going to give you another way to understand this. And this is used in other texts and other halakhic texts. Listen to this phrase. If the waters dry up, even once every seven years, they're not called living waters. What are they called? Well, here we translate as disappointing waters. But there's another phrase that's used. Mayim hamachazvim. Waters that are, and listen to this word, kazev. Mechazvim, kazev. In Hebrew, that means false. I mean, sheker also means false, but kazev is another, another form of that. My, it's waters that are false. Waters that are deceptive. Oh, sure, it looks like it's flowing. It looks like it's alive. But once every seven years, if it's not flowing, if it's not present, it's not alive. It's considered to be not live waters, but false waters, untrue waters. Not legit. And it cannot be used for living waters. For the, for the rituals that require living waters. This is an unbelievable turn of phrase. It's a... Disappointing evokes other, other emotions, but false is powerful, especially as we bridge the halacha with the kabbalah. Especially as we bridge the legal with the mystical, which we're about to do. The premise of our mystical text... Well, there's a big premise... And then there are little premises, premi. The 
the premise, the big premise, I'm taking a linguistic uh, license here. The, prem the big premise of our text, which for those that are wondering is called Overcoming Folly, the big premise of this is that we tell ourselves stories all the time. We tell ourselves narratives all the time that get us in trouble, that lead us toward negative activities and behaviors. We justify it in the moment by telling ourselves, no, it's okay, or wh whatever the story is. I don't even want to specify a story because literally this, this text is going through all of the stories that we can tell ourselves. But we tell ourselves something to allow us to do it, and then later on, we facepalm and say, what was I thinking? But of course, we were thinking and justifying and rationalizing the moment. The point of this text is to allow us to recognize the rationalizations and to catch ourselves in the moments and to replace the folly, that's why it's called overcoming folly, right? To replace the folly with reason, with sanity. Instead of thinking, you know, askewed, we should be thinking yashar, we should be thinking correctly. And the, the premise is, if we're thinking correctly, we're not going to end up in, in negative behavior. So, one of the things that we tell ourselves um, when, you know, getting ready to engage in activities that we know we shouldn't be doing, one of the things we tell ourselves is, well, look... It's not a big deal because even if I do this, right, even if I do it, I'll still be okay. I'll still be okay. I'm still connected. I'm not spiritually, right? I'm not, I'm not like, this is not disconnecting from source. This is just, you know, a choice that I'm making. No big deal. I'll be okay. We tell ourselves, you know, this looks good. This feels good. This, this seems good. Whatever. The consequence is not going to be so bad. I'll be okay. So what he's trying to highlight in this text, and this is right where we're up to in our, in our mystical conversation, is the following idea. And that is that in life, there are two dimensions. There is the superficial and the authentic. There's the surface and there is the inside. Or, the way I, I think I mentioned at the beginning of the class, there is image and there is essence. And this is really important. Why do I say it's important? And how does it connect with the Mishnah? Let me just drop this and then we're going to explain. Because image, like the rivers that dry up every seven years, image, surface, is false. Because image, like those rivers, dries up. Let me explain. That's the idea. Let me explain. Um, Madison Avenue, right? A nice place in New York, in Manhattan. Madison Avenue, also famously known for marketing and advertising, right? Madison Avenue, Mad Men. It's like the Mecca or whatever. Of, uh, of marketing. All right, Madison Avenue exists, exists in order to create an image which may or may not reflect the reality of what is being portrayed. 
It's all about selling an image, selling the appearance of something. Now, on a good day, the thing itself, the product or whatever it is, is somewhat matching the image. But it's all about image. I had a friend who um, was dabbling in some, some creative design once. And, uh, and he said, like his motto, he said he, he wants his motto to be, don't judge a book by its contents. Right? You know, people say, don't judge a book by its cover. His motto was going to be, don't judge a book by its contents. Right? <laughs> look, at the, look at the cover. Buy it based on the graphic design. Buy it based on the look. And that's it. But, again, this is not a condemnation against uh, design and against marketing and advertising. It's just a statement of, 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 a, of a truth, I think, which is that Madison Avenue is their job. The job is to sell an image. And I think hopefully the, the thing matches the image, but it's about selling an image. The, the reality is that image is usually different than, than what lies in the surface. And, and just to kind of make this a little bit less superficial and more personal, again, I want to mirror the conversation about superficiality in essence. So let's take it away from you know, easy conversations about Madison Avenue and talk about you and I in relationships. Right? How do we, when we meet somebody, how do we judge that person? How do we size them up? Oftentimes, and this is not a condemnation, it's a statement of fact and something that, that, that I think will resonate for all of us. Oftentimes, when we meet somebody, we will judge them based on appearance, based on how they look, how they speak, how they dress, where they live, how they act. Right? We'll judge a person based on the superficial. Now, when you get to know them for a while, when you get to know them better, so after you spend time with them, then suddenly, oh, now you get to know who they are, but not everybody do we have a chance just based on you know, practicalities and, and pragmatic considerations. We don't always have the chance to, to peel away the surface and get beneath the surface and get a real understanding, a true understanding of who that person is at their core. And that provides a challenge because we are, even if we try not to, but we are always, I can't say always, we are very often judging books, people, by their cover external experience. That's the way it works. To the point that our society has told us, has, I'm going to use the word tricked us, into believing that love and, real, and, and, and relationships can be predicated, can be founded and based on superficial um, first looks and impressions. That's, that's what our society glorifies and glamorizes is that love at first sight. And there's nothing wrong with love at first sight, but when we believe that there's a correlation between true love, true, I don't mean Hollywood love, I mean real, true love, and appearances, that's when we know that something's gone sideways. Because that is not true love. There's, there's beauty, and there's external, the external appearance, and then there's love, and those are not the same thing. Just to give you a little bit of a, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm touching on a lot of different subjects. They're all connected, and, and I'm going to make sure to tie everything together. But because there's so many different parallel subjects that are all speaking to the same truth, I, I, I'm going to limit to how, how long I elaborate on it. But of course, if you have any questions, you know, jump in, unmute, put in the chat, and let's have a dialogue about this. But I, I just want to share a few more points about this specific idea. Kabbalah speaks about four dimensions of reality. There's the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual. And these are parallel to the four worlds of, 
Atzilot Bria Yitzir Nasiya, the world of uh, emanation, creation, formation, and action. So from the top down, it would be spiritual, uh, sp- sorry, spiritual, intellectual, emotional, and physical. From the bottom up, of course, <laughs> the reverse, physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual. And, and all four dimensions are areas of compatibility in human relationships. So you can be physically compatible, emotionally compatible, intellectually compatible, and spiritually compatible. Ideally, all four, right? Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Often, to, and again, this is what our society tells us. And it tells us this, how does, who, who's society and how does it tell us? Tells us through the messages that society or we as society create that we tell each other, the stories that we tell each other through film, through, through books, through... Hol- it's the stories that we tell as a society. How do you know what a people are? Look at the stories that they produce. Our stories glorify this love at first sight and love that's based on appearance. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. To build, please God, please God, right? Everlasting love, eternal love, or a long-lasting love based on an appearance, based on looks, is... Um, is a very um, foolhardy um, venture. Why do I say this? Because the one thing that is a guarantee about a person is that their appearance will change. That is the one, the one thing that we know is guaranteed about another human being is that the way they look will change. We do not, it's not guaranteed that their emotional disposition will change or their intellectual ideals will change or that their spiritual values will change. The one thing that is guaranteed to change is the appearance. No one ever looked the same. I'm going to use weird numbers, but just work with me on this. No one ever looked the same at 5, 15, 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, 75, 85, 95, 105, 115, and 120. Never happened that the person looked exactly the same all the way through. Will you agree with me on that? Yes? Is that correct? All right, perfect. So this is like building a tower, building a skyscraper on a surf, on a foundation that is ever shifting. To that I say, good luck and Godspeed. That, that ain't going to work. That ain't going to work. A, a, a true edifice, which in Hebrew, the, the blessing that we give to the Chatan and Kala, to the bride and groom is, it should be a binyan adiyar, which is literally using Bin, you know what the word binyan means? Binyan? Binyan means an edifice. Adeyad means eternal. We bless the bride and groom that they should build together. Not a home that's, well, actually, I guess it could be a home. But, but we use the word edifice. Yeah, we don't say buy it. We also do say buy it. Buy it, neman. Whatever. All right. Anyway, binyan adeyad means an eternal edifice, which edifice, for me at least, evokes a big building. An edifice. A big structure. And the idea is you build a structure, the first thing you need is a solid foundation. So what's the foundation? What's the foundation of the relationship? The way they look when you met them. Okay. All right. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You have to be, you have to be attracted to the other person. But, right? Hold on. There's got to be more. You have to have a solid foundation here. You have to have compatibility, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, ideally spiritual, because that is the most, the core of the, that's the, at the core of the human being, the essence of their soul is this, is of course the spiritual dimension. That's the ideal of building a relationship. I mention all of this to contrast the realities of image versus essence. 
Image is, at the end of the day, superficial. Image, yes, of course, a good person. A good person with chayn, a good person with, with, with good midas, with good, good character traits. Their face shines and you can see the kindness, you can see the compassion, you can see the love. Yes, the essence does have an effect on the image. But so often when we're trying to reverse engineer, in other words, we look at the outside and try to imagine what's on the inside, so often we simply get it wrong. And it's our duty as human beings to look beneath the surface and to not believe our snap judgments and reactions. We should not believe the surface. When we look at somebody, do we see the external appearance or do we see the inside? Last night there was an incredible program that was put on by Friendship Circle of Atlanta. And uh, I was asked to share a few words, which I did, and uh, about the book that I wrote uh, in 2019, a book on inclusion. And it was about disability inclusion and mental health awareness. And one thing we know about disability inclusion, and mental health for that matter, is that the way we look at people matters. The way we judge people matters. The way we judge matters. And how do we look at somebody? Do we look at their external appearance and decide who they are, what they can and cannot do? Or do we grant them, do we grant each other, do we grant our fellow human being the dignity, the dignity of exploring their essence and getting to know who they really are? And this is true for everybody. I just mentioned that because it was an event last night that was very powerful. It was a Havdalah Zoom and, uh, and, 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 and speaking event uh, with, with, with talks. The point is, life, we have a ch- in life we have a choice. In pretty much any situation, whether it's meeting people or whether it's encountering challenges. Are we looking at the surface of this scenario? The person, the place, the thing, whatever noun it is, right? Are we looking at the surface or are we looking at the essence? Are we getting distracted by image or are we able to focus on essence? In those moments, to bring it back to our conversation here about overcoming folly, in those moments of our vulnerability, the moments in which we are challenged by our temptations and passions, and the moments that we are vulnerable to perhaps teeter over the edge and make a decision that is perhaps self-destructive or otherwise harmful to ourselves or to others. And in those moments of great decision, those moments of vulnerability, what oftentimes gets us in trouble is our focus on image and not essence. It looked good. It felt good. It seemed good, right? What could go wrong? Kabbalah encourages us to look deeper. And it's not only in counteracting those moments that when the, when the challenges arrive, we're able to pull out these deeper ideas and meditations and perhaps redirect our focus and energy. It's not just about grabbing onto these ideas in moments of crisis. It's rather living a life focused on essence and a little less focused on image. And if we're focused on essence, then we don't get distracted by the shiny things that twinkle and sparkle in front of us that could lure us into 
um, uh, negative, those negative, those negative places. It's about living a life that's connected. When we live a life connected to the essence, when we live a life that's connected with essence, we're less vulnerable. But even moreover, when we encounter a challenging moment, our reaction is, oh, wonderful, an opportunity to flip this energy toward the good, as opposed to leaking energy, leaking holy energy, and delving into a negative space. We're able to uplift, transform, and flip a negative energy to the positive when we're looking at the essence. And let me give you an example. Um, I'm not going to give you a specific example, but more of a general framework example. Person is faced with a challenge. Challenge that challenges their spiritual beliefs. So let's say Judaism teaches that this, you know, is a value. The person says, I, I get that it's a value, but I find it to be very challenging. This mitzvah or this uh, whatever it is, yeah, let's, let's say it's a mitzvah. Right, this mitzvah is, is a mitzvah, it's important. But a person says, uh, personally, I find it very challenging to do this mitzvah because of X, Y, and Z. So here's what Kabbalah would say. I'm not giving you a specific scenario because I don't think it's fair to give a specific scenario because everyone has mitzvot that are more comfortable and less comfortable. And I think it's more powerful that we each kind of uh, personalize it in our own way. I don't want to impose any, any image on this discussion of essence. That would be a little bit uh, counterproductive. So imagine there's a mitzvah that you value but you find it difficult, right? And everyone has that. Everyone has mitzvot, a mitzvot, or plural mitzvot that, are, that, are, that, that we struggle with. And we struggle for a number of reasons. Let's say it's a pragmatic reason. It's difficult to do because of, you know, X, Y, and Z. And practically, it's, 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 it's difficult. We find it difficult to do. So there's a way in which we look at the challenge as an obstacle. And that's a surface way of looking at it. So there's this mitzvah, but here's the challenge, and I can't, you know, I, I can't, it's hard to do when this thing is getting in the way. But then you study Kabbalah, and you realize that, one second, what, what is an obstacle in the first place? What, what is an obstacle? And what is a challenge in the first place? The challenge and the obstacle is nothing but the appearance of either the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, or the Nevesh Bahamas, the animal soul, or what we might call in Kabbalah, klipa, which means the shell. Literally means the shell, the surface. It's a, it's a force that covers over the truth. But who, who is the Yetzirah? Who is the Nevesh Bahamas? Who is the evil inclination and the animal soul? Who is klipa? What is it? What is it? It's nothing but divine energy. It's divine energy in a form that obscures the truth. So if you and I know that, you know what that means? The challenge is not a real challenge. Are you with me on what I'm saying? I think I should say that again. If you and I know, yeah, that when we confront, a few weeks ago we read about the splitting of the sea, right? The Jews, Exodus, Egyptians chasing, the sea splits. Yeah, there's two ways to look at life when there's a sea in front of you and the Egyptians behind you. There's two ways to look at life. One way is, 
uh-oh, there are Egyptians behind me and a sea in front of me, I'm done. There's nowhere to go. The other way to look at it is the sea is nothing but God manifest as a challenge for the sole purpose of me peering beneath the surface and recognizing the truth of what this is. The moment I stand up to the challenge is the moment the purpose of the challenge is realized. I should probably add in a piece. The purpose of the challenge as designed by God, because there's no other force other than God. This is monotheism, right? So the purpose of the challenge that opposes our forward progress is only to bring out greater energy. The moment that energy has been summoned, the challenge has achieved its purpose. Are you with me? The challenge that God put in order to summon my energy has now fulfilled its divine purpose. It too has divine purpose. Because to summon energy, it's like a hurdle whose purpose is that the runner should jump over. The moment we jump, it has fulfilled its purpose. It no longer needs to be, and the sea splits. That's the way it works. And that's a meditation. That's not only a, a Kabbalistic fact, but it's also a meditation. So that when we face that challenge, when we have that mitzvah, but then a challenge comes up, we have a choice. It's a real challenge. I don't know what to do. I guess I can't do this thing. Or we can say the challenge is only existing for me to get a little bit more creative as to how I'm going to do this mitzvah, but this mitzvah I'm going to do. Come Egyptian advan advancing Egyptian army or high sea water. You see how I modified that one. Come whatever may, I am going to see this challenge through and I'm going to do this mitzvah and I know that I shouldn't take the challenge so seriously because I know that life does not exist on the surface. There's an essence truth that drives it all. And the essence truth, even of what looks like the opposite, is holy. It's for my forward progress. It's in order to summon the greatest and deepest energies that would have never come to the fore had I not faced this challenge in the first place. Had every mitzvah been as easy as eating ice cream, yeah, I would have never summoned the true capacity of my soul. It's only because of God's gift of opposition, God's gift of the Sahara, God's gift of the Nevisha Bahamas, God's gift of Klippa, God's glyph of Sitra, not glyph, God's gift of, Kli of Klippa and Sitra Akra. It's only because of those gifts that I'm able to access the deepest recesses of my soul and education example, as I always like to give. The teacher who loves their students, and she gives the students ideas to learn, and things to think about, and assignments, and challenges. A teacher who loves her students is going to not only give her students easy work, but she'll also give her students difficult work. Why? Not to break the student, not to um, frustrate the student. No, on the contrary, to bring out the true potential of the student. And the truth is, the more potential, I don't know, I even hesitate saying this because why judge? But just, right, humans being humans, the more potential we see in someone, the more we wish to challenge them. Not to give them a hard time. Not to give them a hard time. 
but to bring out the depth of what we see in them that they won't be able to achieve otherwise. You might ask, well, why is it that it's only challenge that brings out the depths? To that I say, that's embedded in the programming of the universe that God set up. Our world, at least. Not for the angels. They have it easy and they have their own way. But our world is programmed as such that the beauty, the depth, only comes out through challenge. That's the way it works. So, you got to take it up with the author of the source code. Um, and I, I, I can't give you an answer. Why? But I can only tell you that that's how it works. And you and I know this based on our studies in Kabbalah and Torah, but also empirical evidence tells us that you and I know that it's those moments that we were challenged, that we came forth with greater energy, greater capacity, greater ideas. It's no, it's no um, surprise that there's a phrase, necessity is the mother of invention, right? The greatest innovations, and I'm sure some of you were thinking that as I was talking about this, right? The greatest innovation comes through challenge, through hitting a wall. You hit a wall. The greats, when they hit a wall, they keep on going. That's how the greats operate. The greats, when they hit a wall, they don't look at it as, all right, time to go back. Time to turn around. I got to go. Clearly, I'm not meant to move forward. No, it looks like a wall superficially. This is not a wall. This is not an obstruction. This is not an obstacle. This is not a barrier. This is a launch pad of opportunity. This is a springboard. This is a catalyst for the most immense growth of my life. This moment, when we look at challenge like that, again, mystically, I want to give you the matrix version of this. What we've done is we've chiseled through. We've chiseled through the surface, the surface of the challenge, the surface of the opposition. We've now recognized the essence of the challenge. We put our arm around the challenge. We've said, challenge, I know you. You are opportunity. And the moment we do that, we disarm the challenge and indeed it becomes an opportunity, which means that the greatest breakthrough, the greatest breakthrough happens when we look beyond the surface to the essence, when we look beyond the superficial and look at the true reality. That is how we break down challenge. And so, in those moments of vulnerability, to kind of bring things back, and don't worry, don't worry, we are going to study Kabbalah inside I'm going to share my screen soon. We'll read the text inside. I'm giving you kind of an opening intro. In those moments of vulnerability, those moments in which part of us is saying, ooh, why don't you try that? Why don't you do that? It looks good. It tastes good. It feels good. Whatever it is, this would be, this will be an enjoyable experience. Don't worry about the fact that you're disconnecting from your soul, from your core, from your purpose, from your mission, from your truth. Don't worry about that stuff. You'll worry about that later. And now you're not even being disconnected from your source. You're still connected. You're still okay. Just try it. You'll like it. In those moments, knowing the truth, knowing the essence, we will not be, we we have a better chance of not being persuaded by the surface, persuaded by the superficial, but rather we will have the ability to look inside and recognize that this is nothing but a challenge to let me see deeper, and not just to reject this opportunity, but to find the soul within this challenge. Again, I just want to be clear here. There's really two layers in which this happens. The more superficial way of looking at it is challenge presents itself, and my job is to 
you know, kung fu at ninja it away and knock it down and stay on the path. That's one way. That's a more superficial way. I mean, halavai, we should do that, right? I mean, that would already be getting ahead of the game. But this, there's a deeper understanding that the challenge itself, when it comes to us, we recognize as also an opportunity, right? The challenge comes to us and we say, oh, I've been waiting for you. Perfect. Here's my opportunity to look deeper. Here's my opportunity to look deeper, not just as to what I need to be doing, but also deeper in what you're offering. So when you're offering me to do something, I might actually take you up on the offer, but in that moment, I'm going to do it in a way that connects with my higher purpose. Does that make sense, that last little piece that I just said? Yeah, so if it's about some sort of physical indulgence, I may still do it, but not out of physical indulgence, but out of higher connectedness. So I may, again, I don't, I don't want to limit it to any specific example, but I may go ahead Again, in a kosher way. I may go ahead with that, with that opportunity or with that engagement, but connected with a higher place. The classic example we always give is about eating and drinking, right? It's a classic Kabbalistic example of this higher or lower, superficial or essential um, a form of doing it. We can eat from a superficial place, right? Just to satisfy our bodies and our, and our physical cravings or from a deeper place. The verse says in, uh, in Deuteronomy, Ki Man does not live on bread alone. It's a famous line, right? From the, from the Bible, from the Torah. Man, human being, humankind does not live on bread alone. Rather, ki, I'll call Hashem Rather, on the utterance of God's mouth, so to speak, does man live, right? Man does not live on bread alone, I believe was a marketing campaign, speaking of Madison Avenue, in the 80s, for Wendy's or whatever, for one of these uh, fast food places, right? Man does not live on bread alone. Make sure you get the Whopper or whatever. I'm probably mixing, uh, mixing uh, companies and brands. But the point is that, that um, the Torah says, getting back to the Torah's message in Kabbalah, man does not live on bread alone, rather on the utterance of God's mouth. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means that it's not the food that satisfies it's the spirituality within the food that truly invigorates. When we eat, we can eat the bread or we can eat the energy, the divine energy within the bread. And those are completely different experiences. We can eat for the sake of our bodies, physical cravings. And yes, the, the body needs fuel. And yes, it's a mitzvah to take care of our bodies. But there's an opportunity to make this a holy experience, to make this physical engagement in food, not just a physical experience, not just a sensual experience, we can make it a spiritual experience, an experience in which it becomes almost mitzvah-like, mitzvah-esque. It becomes a mitzvah because we're binding ourselves in a connection with God. We're not eating the bread. We're releasing the energy from the bread and we're integrating into ourselves. And then we're using that energy for a higher purpose, for a mitzvah, for a blessing, Right, to study Torah. We're all studying Torah now. So whether it's LaCroix, right, or a coffee, or a cup of tea, right, whatever you're drinking, th think about it. That food, beverage, whatever it is, maybe you had a Danish or a bagel, right? Back in the day at, at Chabad, we would have bagels and cream cheese. Please God, we'll get back soon, right, in good health. The bagel, the cream cheese, the lox, the coffee, the tea, the seltzer, whatever it is, 
Donna, you wrote about love and uh, fresh uh, love and and and, and air and and, and water, right? In France, in our family, we say love and fresh air. We don't even need the water. So. Um, <laughs> Whatever we're eating and whatever, whatever we're enjoying, what's happening on a spiritual level, we're taking the energy, right? The energy of the food, integrating it, assimilating it into our biology, and then that energy fuels us to be able to study Kabbalah. That's amazing. Because not only are we able to study Kabbalah, but we're transferring the energy. And no energy is lost, right? Love, conservation of... The, of uh, love, conservation of matter or energy or something, right? Something like that. It says that nothing is ever created or destroyed, right? Nothing is, can ever be destroyed. No energy can ever be destroyed, which means that the energy within the food, the energy in the earth that produced the wheat that went, was ground into flour, that was mixed with water, and all of the people that were involved in that process, the farmer and all of the elements, right? The rain, the sun, everything that was involved is all part of that energy that is now inside me. And now we're studying Torah. Guess what Kabbalah says? This is us elevating the entire world at every moment. When we're faced with a challenge, not every challenge is kosher necessarily. And some we have to say, not now, not ever. Thank you very much. But even that's an opportunity, right? To, to, break, to break the shell and get to the core. But oftentimes, what we're presented with as a challenge can really be redirected and flipped for the positive. This is another meditation to have in our meditation toolbox to overcome folly. Those moments of, those moments of vulnerability. When our inner voices and maybe some outer voices tell us, come on, try it, what could go wrong? We are encouraged by Kabbalah to look a little bit deeper beneath the surface. To not look at the superficial, but to look at the real. And now, I want to connect it with the waters. I told you before that although our translation and, uh, of the Mishnah that I show, shared with you earlier talked about disappointing waters, there's another phrase in halachic literature about these waters. The waters that dry up. Once, even once every seven years. They are called false waters. Why? Let's, get, let's tie it into this conversation. Because on the surface, on the surface it looks real. On the surface it looks like it's Mayim Chaim. It looks like it's real living waters. But in truth, they're not alive. If they were alive, they wouldn't be drying up once every seven years. The true definition of life, listen to this, the true definition of life is that which is eternal is that which is constant, is that which is plugged in. That is the meaning of life. We've been discussing in our journey of the soul class, the life, life is the soul and the soul is eternal and that's what life is. In our context today about water, living water, which is needed for Jewish rituals, halakhic rituals for purification, back in the days of the temple, you needed living waters, waters from a living source, a source that never dries up or dries out. That is the definition of life, that which is eternal. And so in the moment, we are given the choice. Are we going to look at the superficial? Are we going to look at that which changes? Are we going to look at the appearance? Or are we going to look at the real, the essential, the eternal, that which is steady and constant? In a relationship, it's a quick, it's a simple question. In a relationship, it's a simple question. Are we going to look at, are we going to judge the other person solely on their, on their appearance? Oh, I like the way you look. Let's commit to each other forever. Or... Are we going to look what's inside at what's really eternal about the person, their spiritual values, and then decide and recognize whether or not there is that compatibility? That is the question that we face constantly. Do we look at the outside or the inside, the superficial or the real? That's the question. Kabbalah 
Kabbalah itself is this, right? You can study Torah and only get the surface. Oh, I know what Torah is. It's a book of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. How boring or how technical. Or you could study Kabbalah also. And you know what Kabbalah is? No, don't just look at the surface. Look at the inside. I'm, what I'm trying to give you is parallels. It's all paralleled within each other, right? Superficial or the, or the internal or, or the, the essential. And it makes sense that Kabbalah would champion. Kabbalah, which is Pnimiyot Torah, the inside, the, the soul of Torah, it's, it's, not, it's not by chance that Kabbalah would champion a view of the world that is likewise deeper and less superficial. All right, I'm going to pause for a moment or for a few moments, check in with everybody, questions, comments, ideas that came up, and then after we have a bit of a conversation, we'll jump into the text and, and read some text inside. All right, feel free to jump in, unmute yourself, and uh, fire away, please. Rabbi, the, uh, the scientific law that you are alluding to was matter is neither created nor destroyed, it merely changes form. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I believe it's called the law of conservation of matter. Is that correct? Okay. Good. Good, good, good. Um, questions, comments, ideas, thoughts? Please jump in. I mean, don't feel pressure. Only if you got something. In my arguments for Torah. Uh, there is a verse that goes, and I think it's from Micah, and it, it, it sounds like this. Yeah. So uh, the source of life-giving waters is God. Yeah, wow. That's my favorite verse of... Yeah, that's, uh, that's, ki- that's, yeah, Yaakov, that's kind of perfect for today. That is, uh, that is very perfect for today's conversation. Yeah. That is absolutely perfect. All right, so let's, um, let's jump in. I'm finding on my end, I have the PDF open to the book. The book is hard to come by. Um, it's not currently in print from the publisher. It is a, um, it's a book that is only able to be found at this point secondhand, but it's possible um, to find it. So I'm gonna share the PDF with you from hebrewbooks.org with permission of the publisher. Give me a moment. Just find where I want to start from. Um, not here. One second. Okay, I think this is where we're up to, page fifty-four. And if I'm if I'm incorrect, if you remember something else from last week, just let me know. We can we can go back a little bit. But I think this is where we're where we are up to. Um, okay. Sharing my screen with you. Here we go. All right, can you all see that? Yes, thumbs up if you can. Yeah, okay, good, perfect. All right, so last week, last week, we spoke about the idea of life, which we spoke about today, which we're speaking about today as well, and the difference between Kedusha and Sitra Akhra. Kedusha is the realm of holiness, and Sitra Akhra is the other side. In other words, the side that opposes holiness. So anything that is opposite of holiness is called Sitra Akhra. It doesn't have to be evil, it's just not holy. Anything that is not holy, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y-H-O-L-Y, anything that is not exclusively holy 
is in the bucket, if you will, of Sitra Achra. If you want to know the word that I'm talking about, it's this word or this phrase right up there. Sitra Achra, which is Aramaic, it comes from Zohar, Kabbalah. Sitra means side, Sitra is side, and Achra, like Acher, is other. So Sitra Achra means the other side. So the big premise here in Kabbalah is that holiness derives its energy directly from God, whereas unholiness, or Sitra Achra, the other side, receives its vitality in an indirect fashion. So just to kind of explain, you know what, let me just stop sharing for a moment, sorry, just to explain a little bit about this. Um, the example that we'll see inside, I just want to like kind of physically mime it out, so better if, uh, if you can see me a little bit more clearly than, than the screen, than, than the image that I shared of the book. So imagine when you want to do something, you're excited about doing something, excited about engaging with another person, so you're engaged face-to-face. And if you're giving them something, you'll give them with a smile, with love, face-to-face. When you're not excited about something, when you're doing something begrudgingly, right, kind of it's like, um, oh, yeah, sure, here, take it. And you'll give it kind of like behind your back. The idea here is not that it's exclusively done like this. You know, sometimes we could smile even if we don't want to do something. Sometimes we're rushing and we'll give something that we do want to someone that we do love behind their back. It's not exclusive, you know, front back, but it kind of evokes this idea, the imagery of front and back evokes the same idea of essence versus superficial. So that which we are deeply connected with, essentially connected with, is considered more face-to-face. And that which is more superficial is like the back. I think I used this analogy or, or, or shared this insight last week as well, um, the, f- the f- front versus back of a human being is also where you can see um, kind of the distinctions of, of who that person is and what they're about. But when you look at a person's face, it's a window to the soul. A person's eyes are a window to the soul. So, so you can see who they are and what they are and what they are about, whereas the back, it's a little bit more anonymous. It's a little bit more of a blank slate. You can't really tell. The back of a head, you know, you can't really tell what a person's thinking. You know, you can't tell... Um, you can't tell a lot about a person from the back, but from the front, it's a different, it's a different reality. It's the same thing about, you know, the, the, the essential versus the, the surface or the superficial. The back would be considered superficial. You don't get a good glimpse. The front is more essential. Again, the front could also be superficial, as I said before, but again, relative to the back, it's more, it's more um, essential. And so, here's the big idea. The energy, the divine energy, that flows into things that are healthy and positive and holy, that energy flows in a direct way, direct from God, directly into that item, idea, reality, face-to-face, direct connection with love and with, connect, with, with a depth. Why? Because it is the tachlis. It is the purpose. It is, uh, it is desired. Whereas, by contrast, Anything that represents sitra achra or klipa, which is that superficial shell, that which obscures and obfuscates reality. So anything that hides on the truth also is, as I said before, receives divine energy. But the divine energy that it receives is acharayim, is from the back, so to speak. It's It's an indirect energy. Why do I say indirect? Because it stands, at least superficially, opposite of what the truth is. So you have what's true, and you have what opposes the truth. The opposition is also also godly and divine, 
But because it, at least superficially, stands in opposition, its energy source is not pure and direct. It's a little bit of an indirect energy. Does that make sense? Sort of? Yes? We could go deeper and, and, and wrap our heads around it a little bit more, but I want to do it inside because I've done a lot of talking already. Let's do it inside and hopefully the, the, the picture will fill out and it will take a little bit more shape. All right, let, let me share my screen and we're going to jump in. We're going to jump in right where it says true definition of life. You see that right in the middle of the page, true definition of life? Okay, here we go. Since the inwardness of the divine will. Now, inwardness, inwardness a little bit of a bulky translation. It means the essence. Since the essence of the divine will does not rest at all on the Sitra Akra, right? God doesn't want us to run into the obstacle. God does not want us to trip over the, uh, the hurdle. God does not want us to succumb to the temptation. That's not what God, God wants, right? So we're talking about divine will. What does God want? God does not want us to fall prey to the fear or fail. I don't want to use that, that word because that's a judgment, but God does not want us to get deterred by the obstacle. That's not God's will. So God's will does not rest on the Sitra Akra. Again, the Sitra Akra is a form of divine will, but it's the anti-will will. Does that make sense? God wants it to provide opposition and for us to reject it or jump over it or overcome it or transform it. But it itself is not wanted. It's wanted only indirectly as a means to an end. Oh, maybe that's a good way to talk about it. So there are things that God wants as an end and things that God wants as a means to an end. So the opposition, Sitra Akra, is not what God wants really. It's what God wants in order to bring out something more powerful within us by rejecting what this stands for, the Sitra Akra. I hope all that makes sense. Okay. Rabbi? Yeah. Could, could we say that inwardness uh, could also be uh, interpreted as the main flow of the divine will? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, the essence and the main flow. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what he's referring to. It's the flow, the main flow, primary flow. And not only primary as opposed to secondary, but it's the loving, intentional, dynamic, essential flow of energy from God into creation that flows into things that God wants us to do, right? In the areas that are part of our spiritual growth and achievement or part of our achievement. It does not rest at all on the Sitra Akra. And even, listen to this, even the hinder part of his will, hinder part means, again, the back of his will, which is the indirect. So again, God wants the opposition, but not directly, indirectly. God wants the opposition to lead to the opposite of the opposition, which is the truth. Again, God, okay, let me, uh, let me stop sharing for a second. It's almost like, if we want to put it in human terms, it's almost like God creates image, in order that we go beyond it, right? Because if, if we saw from the beginning the essence, then what would be, there wouldn't be a kunst, there wouldn't be a trick, there wouldn't be an accomplishment to connect with essence. Essence would always be there, right? There, there wouldn't be any type of achievement to reach the essence because it was always there. So God puts an image, and oftentimes the image 
put, puts us in a different direction or, 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 or tries to convince us something that's not true. And we have to overcome image and look at essence. And so again, it's the same thing. What does God want and what does God want, in, what does God want directly and what is, what is desired indirectly? All right, back inside. Back inside. Um, okay. Uh, so, so it's not direct, and even the hinder part, the indirect, is not actually invested within it, but rather is makif above it, apart from it. So that's another point, which is that, number one, it does, it's not the direct desire, therefore it doesn't get direct energy. It's indirect. And even the indirect energy that it gets is not internalized within it to make it transparent. Rather, it's makif, it's, it's, it encompasses it. To give you the explanation of what that means, makif versus panimi. So makif is, so panimi means, not panini, that's a sandwich thing, toasted sandwich. Panimi, with an M, panimi. In Hebrew means inside, makif means surrounding or hovering from the outside. So the difference between these is like this. Something which is inside, you can see, when you look at the thing, you can see what's inside of it. Something that's makif, you can't tell what's inside of it. So, um, give you an example. Let's see if I can think of, a, of an example on the fly over here. Um, it's about integration. It's about how well does something integrate. Something that's fully integrated, so you can see the integration. Something that's not well integrated, it's a bit clunky, and you can't really see what's going on inside. So, for example, let me think of an example. Let's talk about clothing. Yeah, a big goofy party hat. Well, yeah, well, hold on. Let me give you an example here with clothing. Let's talk about clothing here. So clothing that fits a person, right? Fits a person's dimension, so you can see the person. But imagine a person steps into a... Remember when you were a kid, you had those like potato sack races or whatever it is. You put on like a, like a sack and you, you hopped toward the finish line, whatever, something like that. So you have also, you know, you could wear something that's, that's just like, you know, put on a bag or something, I don't, I'm not suggesting this, but put on a bag and then you can't tell who and what is inside, even if it is a human being, because you can't tell. So what he's trying to say over here is that number one, it's not directly what God wants. God does not want evil. God does not want challenge. God directly. God wants it only for us to overcome it, but not directly. But even the indirect will that God does have of this thing is not internalized in it. What that means is when you look at the challenge, you don't immediately see God providing the challenge. You see the challenge itself. I hope that makes sense. So there's two elements with the challenge. Number one, it's not what God really wants. And number two, you don't, we don't even see that. So when you look at a challenge, you see two things. You see a, you see a valid option and you see something that looks like well, I guess valid option would be both of these things, right? Both elements. So in truth, God does not want this. God wants us to overcome it. That's point number one. And number two, we don't see that reality because it's makif above it and it's not within it. I hope that makes sense. If anyone needs more explanation, jump in. Otherwise, I'm going I'm to hope that, that I explain this uh, sufficiently. So there's two elements. Number one, it's not the internal, it's not the inward divine will. It's the external will. And number two, it's not internalized. It's only makif, which means that we don't see immediately that it's not what God wants. It looks real and we take it seriously. It's only through Kabbalah that we realize, number one, this is not what God wants. And number two, it's really God that is doing this, as I said before, for the challenge.
Um, and therefore, he says, since it's not the inwardness of the divine will and it's only in a makif state, therefore, therefore, he says, it is in the sight of death and defilement, may God protect us. Okay? So what he's saying here is that since it's not real, since it's not true, since it's not the essence, since it's, not, it's only makif, it's, it doesn't have the divine energy flowing through it in, a, in, a, in, in, an, in an obvious, transparent way, Therefore, for all intents and purposes, it is considered to be the realm, I don't know why it's called sight, it's more the realm or dimension of death and defilement, may God protect us. Now, that doesn't mean that physically it's dead, it's a valid option, and we can choose it, but it means that spiritually it's dead. Now, how does that drive with what I said before about opportunity in Klippa and Sitra Akra? Yes, there's, there, there is opportunity, but the opportunity lies in the fact that we realize that in and of itself, it's death and defilement. In other words, in and of itself, it's only superficial, and superficial is not real, is not true, it's not really alive. It's when we realize that the surface is not real, then we can get to what is true and what is truly life. And he explains right here, true life is godliness, for he is the living God. And it is written, the Lord our God is true, he is the living God. There's a correlation between true and life. That which is true is life. That which is false is not life. What is false? False is that which misrepresents itself. False would be Klippa and Sitra Akra. When the opposition created by God says, look at me, choose me, this looks good and it will feel good and you have nothing to worry about, no repercussions, right? No big deal. When that gets on the megaphone and announces itself, that is a lie, right? It's, the, it's a lie. Now, it's a lie for a purpose, for us to see beyond it, but the statement itself is a lie, right? That is death and defilement. It's a disconnection. It's not truth. It's not truth. It's also divine, but it's not true. True life is godliness, right? So there's a correlation between true and life. Since he, and he summarized this in the last sentence here, since he, since God is the true God, is the true God, therefore he is the living God. So what is true and what is life? I'm glad you asked. Let's continue the next paragraph. And this gets back to the waters. True life, sorry, true means unceasing and constant, right? The definition of truth is that which is consistent. Let me explain, actually, stop sharing for a moment. The Hebrew word for truth is... What's the Hebrew word for truth or true? Emet. 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 Good. Emet. Excellent. Emet is comprised of three letters. It says in, in, the, in the good books that what are the three letters and what's the significance? Aleph. Emet is Aleph, Mem, Tuf. Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mem is the middle and Tuf is the end. What's the nature of truth? It's consistent from the beginning to the end. If something is true today and it's not true tomorrow, you know what that means? It's not true. If you are a scientist, right, and you're studying, and you have a hypothesis, and you're running experiments, and it works once, but it doesn't work again, is your hypothesis true or is it not true? It is not true. Why? Because true means, the definition of truth is consistency, that it will keep on working. If it worked once, it ain't true. Right? It's just not, well, if it worked once and doesn't work again, it's not true. Emet, truth, is consistent. A lie works once 
A lie, is, a lie maybe makes sense once or twice, but it's not long-lasting. So, again, these are Jewish, spiritual, mystical definitions of terms. Truth. When we call something true, it really means eternal. Now, you and I might use the word true or truth in different ways, but in Torah, in Kabbalah, when you use the word emes or emet, it means constant, eternal. So that which is eternal is true. If it's not eternal, if it's here today, gone tomorrow, well, enjoy it while it lasts maybe, but it's not true. True is eternal. That's why true waters are living waters that don't cease. The waters that dry up at, even once every seven years, mayim hamechazvim, false waters. They're not true because true doesn't stop. Truth doesn't cease. If it's true, it will always be true. And if at any point it won't be true, it was never true. The Rebbe says this about life. The Rebbe says this about life. Not only is the soul eternal, the body is also eternal. You're probably wondering what that means, especially those that are taking the Tuesday night class or the Thursday class, the journey of the soul. What does that even mean? The body is eternal. The whole point is the body is not eternal. Well, there is a fundamental Jewish belief, one of the 13 principles of faith, in the resurrection of the dead. In the resurrection of the dead, the bodies will be, bodies will be resurrected from the etzem luz, from the luz bone. The Rebbe says there's a part of the body that lasts eternally. Not only the soul is eternal, there's a fragment of the body that is likewise eternal. And it's from this fragment of the body, as microscopic as it is, and by the way, this that was perhaps the, the realm of, of, of faith, you know, just this, this fierce faith, is today the stuff of, at the very least, science fiction, if not science itself. Extracting DNA from, from the remains of, of a human being, right? The possibility to regenerate life. There's a whole movie franchise that was predicated on this. It rhymes with Jurassic Mark, right? Jurassic Park, the whole premise of Jurassic Park was, right, re, uh, reinstating dinosaurs from DNA extracted from fossils, correct? Correct? So is it far-fetched that God, I mean, let a, if scientists, again, I'm not saying Jurassic Park ever happened, but it could, right, theoretically, I'm not, right? The concept is there, right? The concept is there, right? Forget dinosaurs with, with, with any organic life, Right? So what's the point? If scientists are at the cusp of this, God can't figure it out. Fundamental Jewish belief that the bodies will, will live once again from the Etzim Luz. And the Rebbe says, why is that significant? Not just to know that we'll, we'll, we'll reconnect not only in spirit, but also in, in physical body one day, which is also um, comforting and valuable and, and true. But it's also because it tells us about the nature of life as we live it now. Because if life of the body ended at any point, Absolutely and irrevocably. You know what that would mean? Even while it's here, it's not true. You understand what I just said? If life for the body would ever utterly end, that would mean that even while we have it, it's not true. The fact that the etzim lose lives on, the body will live once again, tells us that as we live, we authentically live. As we live, we genuinely live. That this life, not only of soul, but of body itself, is life. And for those of you that are part of the Journey of the Soul course, 
All right, you can teach lesson six now. But the point is like this. I'm kidding, it's not the whole lesson, but that's part of it, I think. The point is that life, the definition of life, sorry, the definition of, yeah, life is truth, and truth is life. The two are synonymous. If it's not true, it's not life. If it's life, it will be true. If it's only temporary, and then it stops, that's what it is. It's not life. So that's what we say back inside. That's why the Pasuk says, the verse says something so powerful. We just quoted it, right? Where's the source? 63. What? Why is it not here on the page? All right. Whatever. The, the, oh, Jeremiah. Here it is. Jeremiah 10.10. 10. It says it inside. It says, the Lord our God is true. He is the living God. Because God is true, he's living. Because truth and life are synonymous. Let's get back inside. I, starting again, second paragraph. True means unceasing and constant. Whatever ceases or is interrupted is called kazav, false, like the false rivers of our Mishnah that we started today's class with. Be ca called false, why are they called false? I see them. You tell me it's not water? Hello, I literally see the water. No, 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 they're called false because their flow is occasionally interrupted. Even on occasion, that renders it not true. Truth never ceases. What a, what, a, what a line or a motto, a mantra to live with. Truth never ceases. This definition, one second, this definition applies to living as well. The waters of those false streams could not be used for sanctification purposes, which required living waters. Only something true which is never interrupted, can be called alive. Hence, the Lord our God is true. He is the living God. That's why the verse from Yermio, from Jeremiah, correlates the two. The Lord our God is true. He is the living God. Since He is the true God, impervious to destruction or diminution, He is therefore the living God of His very nature. He lives and exists eternally. Because God is true, God is living eternally, it's one and the same. And I'm not saying one causes the other, but both dynamics exist simultaneously and they are both necessary. If God, God forbid, was not eternal, God would not be considered true life. The definition of life is that which is eternal. True and eternal and life, they're all the same. All three words are connected. We say, Baruch She'amar. No, sorry. Baruch Chai Lo'ad V'kayim Lanetzach in our prayers. 66. Morning prayers, we say this every day. Blessed be he who lives eternally and exists forever. God is eternal. God is true. God is true. God is eternal. God lives. All three are one and the same. And therefore, here's the payoff. Any person or any, I don't think it's even person. I don't know that I agree with this brackets. It's any dynamic, any thing, any reality in existence that adheres to him, to God, is also considered alive. For then, I don't think it's about people. I think it's about things. It's about realities. Anything plugged into the source directly and consciously is considered alive. For then, godliness is radiant within him and united with him or within it. 
while the person is nullified before the godliness that is invested within him and cleaving to him, as will be explained, he too is thus called living. Maybe it is about the person. I could look in the Hebrew. Give me a second here, 56. Let's see if it's specifically speaking about people. I don't think so. I'm looking at the Hebrew. It uses a pronoun of he. I don't think it's about him, a person specifically. All right, listen, I have a disagreement here. It's fine, either way. I don't think it's limited to people. I think it's dynamics. Because a person can choose to engage in an activity that is either alive or not alive. That's the whole point of, of, of today's session. That we have a choice when our inner voice says, oh, try this, do that, in that way. And we think about it and we're like, no, I will not choose to, to, to plug into death. I will not choose the absence of life. I choose to live. I choose to connect myself in this moment to something that is true and eternal and real and divine. So yeah, I may eat. I'm not not going to eat. And I may eat the same food that, that, that my inner temptation, superficial temptation, was offering. But when I eat it, I'm going to eat it in a connected way, in a purposeful way, in a meaningful way, in a true way, in a living way. I'm not eating dead food. I'm eating live energy. I'm consuming the live energy of the divine. So anything plugged in consciously and, 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 and um, yeah, consciously to the source is called alive and anything that is not is the opposite. When we plug into those living things, we are called alive. Our sages tell us, and we're going to end with this, with this thought. It says in Avot Rabbi Natan, it's a, uh, it's a medrash, a midrashic text on Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. It says in Avot Rabbi Natan, 10 are called living. We're not going to list all ten. We're only going to list three. God is living, as it is said, the Lord our God is true. He is the living God, the verse that we quoted before. Torah is true. Uh, sorry, Torah is considered alive, 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 as it says. It is a tree of life for those who seize it, and its supporters are fortunate. And Israel is alive, as it is said. You who cleave to the Lord your God are all alive this day. Since they cleave to God, they are called living. When is a human being alive? When is a human being living? It's when we plug in to that which is truly alive. And how does that happen? It happens each moment there's a choice. Will I plug in to the truth of this moment? Will I plug in to the essence of the moment? Will I plug in to the divine of this moment, to the godly energy of this moment? Or am I just going to look at the surface and allow that to distract me and get caught up in things that are superficial, not true, and essentially not alive. That is the question I'm faced at every moment. This is not only a truth and a teaching of Kabbalah, this is also a meditation and ammunition in our psychological and emotional and spiritual toolbox when we are faced with challenge, whether it's maybe more simple challenges like, oh, you know, oh, hey, try this or whatever, or deep challenges. We have a choice of how we're going to look at it in that moment. Are we going to look at the surface? Are we going to connect with surface? Or are we going to look at the essential, at the essence? That's the choice that we have. The Torah tells us, see I have placed before you today, what is the language? A a blessing and a curse? The ble yeah, but it's... Um, and a blessing? It's... it's uh, Chaim and Tov. I place before you Chaim and Tov, life and good, and Maves and Ra, and death and evil. I place before you life and good, and 
death and evil. Choose life. And we said this last week, the Kabbalist asks, ask, who would ever choose death? It's not so simple. It means in every situation, choose the essence of it. In every relationship, connect with the essence of the other. Choose life. Choose what is real. Choose what is true. Choose what is eternal. And don't get distracted by the superficial. All right, that is it for today. Today, in summary, we spoke about living waters and false waters. We spoke about challenges, superficiality, and essence. We spoke about how to transform the moments, the, the gift of the moments that we have into moments of connection, moments of truth, and moments of life. May we all this week choose life. Not generally choose life. That goes without saying. But may we all really choose to live in a deep way, in a connected way, in a true way, in an eternal way. And may Hashem bless our life with all of the blessings that we need, with good health, with happiness, with nachas, with connections, and of course, with all of the resources that we need, spiritually and physically, to fulfill our unique mission on this beautiful planet that we live in. Thank you for joining me for Kabbalah and Coffee. I appreciate you starting the week with uh, a Kabbalistic jolt of energy together with me. I look forward to seeing you next week as we continue our exploration of overcoming folly. Thank you, and I'm here to stay on for any questions that you might have. Thank you very much. Beautiful, Pleasure. beautiful class. And, and it's, it's so beautiful to, to, to see like the energy in everything and uh, change the life. And especially to, to understand that life wouldn't stop because it's real. Right. And that's, that's, that's a beautiful idea to live. Like, like everything flow like the water and we have to flow to connect with that water and uh, it's beautiful. I, I really thank you. very, very emotional. Thank you. Class. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, it's, 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 if, if life would ever end, it would mean that it would compromise the life that we have right now. So life does continue. But it's all about us consciously connecting in the moment, right? It's about, about opening up our awareness and seeing the truth, seeing a little bit deeper and not getting stuck, you know, in the... It's so easy just to look at the surface, right? To judge a person you know, to judge them by what they've done or who, what they look like, as opposed to getting deep within and, and looking deeper at who they are and honoring that soul. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, thank I'm glad you that it resonated. Pleasure. Class. Pleasure. Questions, oh, comments? I wanted to ask you earlier, but sure. I didn't want you to lose your stream of thought about the water. <laughs> um, um, but we, you know, we all hear about uh, the beautiful couple <clears throat> and they have beautiful children together, and after 30 years, they tell each other, eh, we're not in love anymore, and then they're gone. But it was real. It was like they, they, you know, they would tell you, of course, well, at least the one, those that admit it, yeah, of course there was love, because we had kids together. We worked together for right. decades. But, uh, yeah, things change. I mean, that, to me, I, I just can't fathom that, but if... <clears throat> What, what is going on there? I mean, is it real? So, is it 
anymore. You're, ask, you're asking a good question, and there's really no way for anyone else to comment on anyone else's you know, relationship dynamic. So it would be, it, it's impossible to answer. It's a good, I, I understand the question. I think it's impossible to answer that question, but I would say that even the question, I think, can be premised on looking superficially at that relationship. Because we don't know, no one outside of the, of, the, of the individuals knows how the connection is still being maintained, right? No one knows how that, so even if on the surface, for whatever reason, there needed to be a separation or whatever it is, there still may be that connection in other ways that others or maybe even oneself might not always be aware of it. So I, I understand your question. I think it's a very, it, it's, these are all very... Um, very involved and, and, and delicate uh, dynamics. So it's a good question. I wouldn't say that means that there was ne it was never real. You know, if it ends, it was never real. It could be it was real, and it could be it's still real. And there are other factors involved, right? Because life doesn't only exist on the essence. Life also has a surface reality that we also have to inhabit, which we didn't focus on today because that's usually the default setting I wanted to go in. But even as we're in, there's also an outside dynamic. There are pragmatics of it as well. And there are certain connections that may never cease, even if externally things had to come to an end for whatever reason. And again, it's, it's, it, and, and once you deal with multiple dynamics of two parties, it's, um, it, it becomes complicated. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes someone, like a marriage is happening and has gone on for two decades with beautiful children, but one partner is interested in surface maybe yeah. and ends up shattering the whole thing because something else is shiny and new somewhere else right 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 so exactly yeah not even be both of them decide correct one of them decides and the other can't do anything about it right yeah and that's what i mentioned at the end i wanted to mention that since there's two dynamics so there's two parties and i would say within two parties there's mo even more than two dynamics there's multiple dynamics it becomes very difficult to um, to assign any you know well you know if if it, it, it therefore means x y or z it, it 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 could mean any number of things and it could be one it could be none it could be both it could be you know it could be circumstantial it could be superficial it could be essential it could be anything and it's really impossible to 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 really you know weigh in on anyone else's reality or dynamic. It's only, you know, it's, it's known within that dynamic what it is. And again, I would say even when we're in that dynamic ourselves, we might ourselves not fully recognize, you know, the, what's at play. I, I mean, how often, just, just think about, forget, in a relationship, even within ourselves, how often is it that we feel something, we feel a certain way, we're in a mood, and we're not even sure why, right? It happens all the time. Either good or indifferent or negative, God forbid, or whatever it is. We're in a mood and we're not exactly sure why, and it just, it just is. So we're not always aware of all the dynamics within ourselves, let alone within someone else, let alone within this overarching dynamic of a relationship. But there's no way that we could ever say that, you know, if it ends, then that means, you know, that, that we can therefore draw a conclusion in any, any way about anyone else's relationship. It's something that, you know, is elusive even for those that are in that relationship. Anyway, any other questions, comments? Thank you, Reverend Ari. Pleasure. It's great to see you. Great to see you. All right. Great to see everybody. Moshe, Donna, Toba, Adam, Susan. 
Um, Elaine, yes, absolutely. Relationship take constant regeneration. Yeah, 100%. Good to see you, and we'll see you all very soon. Take care. Stay tuned for more announcements of upcoming stuff. We have our amazing jewelry workshop for Purim, pre-Purim workshop next Monday night. So not tomorrow night, but next, a week from Monday. Um, get your kits while they're still available. They are going fast and furious. Um, in town, jewishacademy.org slash gems. And of course, we have more, more opportunities coming up as well. Check out the website, intownjewishacademy.org for all your awesome Jewish learning and engagement needs and desires. All right, join us and we'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. Shavua Tov. Have a great day.